Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series. Today, we will be listening to Dr. David L. Thomas, MD, MPH, Director, Division of Infectious Diseases, Professor of Medicine, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, discussing hepatitis C treatment decision-making. My DSA in a moment, we'll uh, get started with the presentation from Dr. Thomas uh, as part of the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar series. Uh, this, this presentation will be recorded uh, and later archived on IDSA's uh, Hep C website as well as will be made available uh, in a couple of weeks via iTunes as a video podcast. Uh, before I introduce Dr. Thomas uh, and turn over the, the presentation to him, there's a uh, disclaimer and some other information that I'll need to go over. Um, I'll simply read the disclaimer here that any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations and all opinions expressed during the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network are those of the presenter only. They do not necessarily represent the views of the society. The webinar attendee must use their own independent professional judgment in making clinical decisions. The webinar attendee assumes all risk in using the information provided. The society HEPC Knowledge Network is in full compliance with HIPAA. IDSA will not bear any legal liability for resulting use of the information provided during the webinar. Okay, uh, as Dr. Thomas gives this presentation, should you have a question, we'll ask that you use the question function, uh, which is on the control panel as part of the webinar. As well, you can also ask it via the chat function if that's easier for you. Um, we will, at the end of this presentation, then present or pose the question to Dr. Thomas for him to, um, to respond to if by chance you're unable to use the, uh, the control panel off to the side, if you've dialed in just simply off the telephone and not logged into the webinar, we will open up the phone line and uh, allow you to ask your question live. I will say that the, uh, the, the Q&A session is not recorded, and uh, so at the completion of this presentation is when we end the recording. Um, then finally, the, by way of introduction, the uh, Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is a monthly hour-long webinar series uh, intended to educate IDSA members on the current recommended practices to treat managed patients with Hepatitis C. Uh, it is an opportunity for treaters to engage with experts, discuss issues uh, related to complex patient care and effective uh, treatments. Um, we will be continuing this series into the new year uh, and potentially repeating topics as the, uh, the treatment of hepatitis C is uh, rapidly advancing. This series is provided to you from, uh, with funding from Merck, Vertex, and Gilead. At this point in time, I would like to Turn it over to Dr. David Thomas, who is Director of Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Thomas. 
Thanks very much, Andreas. It's uh, certainly a, a privilege to get a chance to share with you all an update on uh, the treatment of hepatitis C. Uh, I'd like to start out just reminding uh, us of the public health importance of hepatitis C. Uh, there's somewhere around 185 million persons around the world that have been exposed to hepatitis C. And in the United States in 2007, hepatitis C-related mortality surpassed that caused by uh, HIV. In addition, if you look forward, hepatitis C-related liver disease is supposed to increase and, and probably double in the next decade unless we do something different about the way we detect and treat hepatitis C infection. So my topic is the uh, treatment decision-making, and decision-making for the treatment of hepatitis C, like many infectious diseases, comes down to making a risk-benefit uh, calculation for each individual patient. We're trying to answer the question of whom to treat, which of course is to say when to treat an individual uh, hepatitis C-infected individual, uh, and then uh, how to treat, uh, first dealing with the issue of of when or, or, or whom to treat. And, and for that question, we're largely going to be considering the urgency of treatment as uh, determined by the disease stage, the person's readiness for treatment, uh, and the uh, efficacy uh, and toxicity of the treatment. Hepatitis C disease stage, uh, of course, refers to how much fibrosis is in the liver. There are various uh, degrees of liver fibrosis, beginning with uh, what you can see in the upper left, which is just fibrosis around the portal triad, to where the, that fibrosis begins to expand out and push the limiting plate uh, towards the central vein. And then branches of fibrosis can bridge between central vein and the portal triad and between portal triads, so-called bridging fibrosis in the lower left. And then uh, when uh, cirrhosis actually occurs is when uh, the fibrosis begins to organize into small nodules. And these various stages of fibrosis occur over, uh, in, in many instances, decades. And the degree of fibrosis is the best predictor of uh, the likelihood of having an adverse outcome from uh, hepatitis C infection, and therefore is our principal measure of the disease stage and the urgency of treatment. There are a variety of ways that you can ascertain the disease stage in an individual patient, uh, and it, whereas it used to be uh, considered that liver biopsy uh, was the only accepted method, uh, there are also uh, non-invasive methods that have recently been approved, including blood tests, such as the FibroSure or uh, other uh, algorithms that combine the results of various uh, individual markers to come together with an estimate of the amount of fibrosis, uh, as well as a non-invasive radio radiologic test called the FibroScan. These are all accepted methods for ascertaining uh, the liver disease stage and the urgency for treatment, but it's also important to remember that tests that we use for other conditions, such as the viral lobe, which is so 
useful for determining the urgency of treatment with HIV is not um, uh, used for hepatitis C. Um, HCV genotype standard ultrasounds are not uh, sensitive for the degree of fibrosis, nor uh, are CT or MRI. If uh, cirrhosis is noted on those scans, it's a valid indicator of uh, advanced disease, but it's a relatively insensitive method and for all intents and purposes doesn't play a role in uh, typical staging. I've included in this um, slide set some uh, recent reviews of the relative uh, accuracy of various uh, staging methods, beginning with the blood tests and there, as you see a series of blood tests that have been considered many more than what are shown on this slide, but these are some of the leading tests and uh, their uh, diagnostic validity compared to liver biopsy. I want to focus that I'm speaking in particular about the detection of cirrhosis, uh, and in doing so because increasingly with hepatitis C, the emphasis is moving towards the importance of ascertaining cirrhosis and ruling it in or out because cirrhosis changes, in some instances, the way that we treat and certainly uh, changes the urgency uh, of treatment. More nuanced differentiations of whether or not somebody has portal fibrosis or begins to start to have expansion of their limiting plate are not as important as they once were as the success of treatment improves and the decisions about whether to treat have less to do with whether somebody has a stage one or two, and more to do with whether they're cirrhotic and are ready uh, for treatment, as I'll get to later. So in addition to these blood tests that you can uh, order on, on many patients, there's also a newly approved uh, uh, non-invasive test called the FibroScan. It's an ultrasound-like test that was approved in April by the FDA for the uh, staging of liver disease in HCV-infected individuals. This test has the advantage of having a high negative predictive value for ruling out cirrhosis. So if you have access to one of these machines in your practice or nearby to your practice, this uh, test can be extremely useful uh, and probably will have increasing utility as we look to the future and the need to make sure that someone does not have cirrhosis, not just to assess treatment urgency, not just to assess in some instances the nature of the treatment, but also to determine whether or not the patient needs to go on and have a hepatocellular carcinoma screening and management for portal hypertension, such as every two-year uh, upper GI endoscopies. So the emphasis is shifting towards ruling out cirrhosis. So back to our uh, decisions about treating an individual patient. Of course, disease stage is important, and uh, individuals with more advanced disease Bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, estimated as uh, metavir 3 or 4 by one of these tests, are in the group where putting off treatment for a long time would be less desirable. Treatment readiness is also uh, an important aspect of determining treatment. And some patients uh, come in uh, to the clinic saying, uh, I'm ready to start treatment today. And they've been on the internet. They've decided it's now the, now's the right time for them to begin. And in other patients on the other extreme uh, are, are, are preoccupied with other illnesses or perhaps uh, even um, dealing with other uh, life circumstances, 
uh, and are not uh, in a good state to adhere with treatment. Another critical um, determining factor is the relative efficacy and toxicity of treatment. This, used to, th this uh, ratio used to dominate uh, hepatitis C uh, treatment decisions because the efficacy was low and the toxicity was high. But I'm going to show you um, that, that that's changing. Uh, and and th that's probably the most important change that we're experiencing in HCV therapeutics, which is a shift in this efficacy to toxicity ratio. The efficacy of treatment is easiest to characterize from the registration trials. I'm going to show the data for genotype 1 hepatitis C because that's the hardest one to treat and the one where, uh, and it's the dominant genotype in the United States. As you can see, when you compare uh, the use of placebo uh, in the green bar to uh, an HCV protease inhibitor, in this instance, bosepivir, added to pegylated interferon and ribavirin, there's a marked near 30% improvement in the rate of sustained virologic response shown on the y-axis. So uh, the addition of an HCV protease inhibitor which uh, were first licensed in 2011, improved sustained virologic response rates markedly overall in Caucasian and in uh, uh, African-American individuals. The same uh, is evident for another HCV protease inhibitor licensed the same month, uh, tilapavir. Tilapavir-containing arms were more likely to respond to uh, treatment and to have an SVR, which uh, if you're not familiar with this uh, language is a sustained virologic response or a cure rate. That means you become undetectable while on treatment and remain so uh, in most instances uh, six months after stopping treatment. That's tantamount to a cure. So marked improvements and notice that overall you're getting um, uh, more than two-thirds of patients are, uh, are able to be cured uh, even with the most difficult to treat uh, genotype. Not shown in this um, uh, slide are, are many of the details of how to achieve that cure and the fact that in some instances uh, this higher cure rate can be uh, achieved with an abbreviation of treatment from 48 weeks all the way down to 24 weeks or 28 weeks. So um, improvement in the cure rate uh, of 20 to 30 percent with um, a reduction in the duration of treatment by half. That was the explanation for the excitement of these new treatments. It's also the case for HIV co-infected individuals, which many infectious disease practitioners have in their, um, uh, in their clinics. You can see that uh, just as with persons without HIV, those that are duly infected achieve cure rates that are much higher when uh, tilapavir, shown in this first slide, is added to pegylated interferon and ribavirin compared to those in the blue that just get the peg uh, and ribavirin alone. Likewise, the other protease inhibitor improves the cure rates in, when added to pegylated interferon and ribavirin compared to placebo, PEG, and ribavirin. So huge improvements in the likelihood of cure, and cure rates um, of approximately two-thirds in persons that undergo treatment.
Anyasei Academy makes it easy to stay up to date on your continuing education credits and offers learning opportunities all year round. With a variety of maintenance of certification modules, a board practice exam, an antimicrobial stewardship curriculum, and additional rotating course offerings, stay current and confident with offerings from the IDSA Academy. Whether you're a seasoned practitioner seeking a comprehensive review or looking to learn something new, earn the credits you deserve. Explore all learning opportunities at idsociety.org academy. So that's the, the numerator, if you will, on this efficacy to toxicity uh, is, is increased considerably. Uh, the problem is the denominator also went up a bit because we're adding a medication. We're not replacing pegylene interferon. We're adding tilapavir or bosepavir, and therefore logically we're, we're adding to the denominator uh, of toxicity the individuals that were randomized to the protease inhibitor containing arm had increased uh, and had an increase in some adverse events and in some studies where many of the patients were cirrhotic when they underwent treatment the rate of uh, serious complications requiring hospitalization were as high as 12 to 14 percent especially problematic uh, was the uh, incidence of a significant anemia and weakness uh, when these uh, medications were used in persons with cirrhosis and chronic genotype 1 hepatitis C infection. Another question that comes up and that I uh, try to remember to remind patients of is that the, the calculation of whether to treat them and when to treat them has to do with the likelihood that by being cured they can actually improve uh, uh, survival. Uh, notice on this slide, and there have been many other studies that I also cite, that have shown that individuals who do not get um, a sustained virologic response have much higher mortality than those that do. And to be sure, this has something to do with the pretreatment disease stage, but even when stratifying by that, and even when looking years beyond the, the cure, those curves continue to uh, separate, emphasizing um, the value of cure. Uh, and it's not just uh, the reduction of liver cancer and, and liver decompensation, but also overall survival. So uh, we've reviewed the data on uh, disease stage uh, and, and treatment readiness and then the efficacy and toxicity. And collectively, there isn't a magic formula. And interestingly, there are no current uh, published guidelines that say exactly when a particular patient should be treated at a particular disease stage, but rather the guidelines say to consider all these factors, the likelihood of achieving a cure, the urgency of treatment as indicated by disease stage, and then the treatment readiness, and to come up with a decision uh, for each patient. When one uh, does decide to treat, uh, it's important now to think about um, uh, what options there are available. Uh, and, and I'll also mention that as we move forward and cover this second half of the talk, this also has considerable bearing on the first question of whom and when to treat. Patients are also interested to know uh, when they decide whether to undergo treatment, what are my options if I wait another year? What are my options if I wait two years, if I wait six months? Uh, and, the, and that's important uh, also to bring to the, to the, uh, to the bedside uh, when considering 
whether to treat someone. So uh, if we uh, think about uh, current treatment, uh, I've already covered uh, the current standard of care, which is the use uh, for genotype 1 hepatitis C of a protease inhibitor along with PEG and ribavirin. And, uh, those, uh, uh, and the duration of treatment determine whether or not the patient has cirrhosis. In, for persons with genotype 2 and 3 hepatitis C infections, uh, the treatment is pegylated interferon and ribavirin for 24 weeks. So that's today's current standard of care, and I've showed you the data to support that. When we look out into the near term, uh, that is the next six months, it's likely that there will be some changes in that, and so I just want to cover those now because uh, patients uh, should have this information also when they're considering treatment. If we think about changes to expect for genotype 2 and 3, the approval of sofosbuvir, which is scheduled for consideration by the FDA next month and could be on the market as early as November or December of this year, um, uh, might change the treatment algorithms, uh, like uh, both for genotype 2 and for genotype 1 infection. Likewise, simipravir uh, could also affect the way we approach treatment um, uh, as indicated on this slide. And let's just briefly cover the uh, overarching points from these studies. Uh, with uh, the sofosbuvir genotype 2 and 3 studies, notice on the far right, most importantly, when we get into this cure rates, the SVR rates, uh, in this instance, 12 weeks after stopping treatment, we're finding out that the use of sofosbuvir and ribavirin, when compared to the current standard, that is PEG interferon and ribavirin, and remember, these are data for genotype 2 and 3 infections, so we're comparing this new all-oral uh, regimen, a once-a-day sofosbuvir, along with ribavirin, which can actually be dosed once a day as well, uh, to the uh, standard of care. We're seeing uh, no difference uh, in the um, uh, SVR rates and, and therefore, uh, equivalence uh, in the, um, in the uh, uh, success of treatment with an all-oral regimen uh, uh, compared to the uh, uh, standard of care that uh, was much less tolerated. The tolerability is evident on this slide. Look at the difference in the side effects in the column uh, with the pegylated interferon, uh, the third over from the, from the left, and compared to the sofosbuvir and ribavirin. Marked differences in the incidence of many um, adverse effects events, and most of those that did occur uh, seem to be uh, explained uh, uh, to a large extent by the ribavirin. So it's expected that this, these data will change the standard of care for genotype 2 and 3 hepatitis C, and that uh, sofosbuvir and ribavirin might emerge as a preferred uh, treatment or at least an important alternative. For genotype 1 chronic hepatitis C, it's likely this nucleotide inhibitor sofosbuvir might also uh, enter into the treatment considerations, and I'll show you uh, some of those data uh, here. This is a study in which the sofosbuvir is used with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and then uh, we're only dosing the three uh, medications for 12 weeks. So rather than 24 or in some instances 48 weeks of uh, PEG-RIBA and a protease inhibitor, we're just looking at 12 weeks of these three uh, medication 
in this open label study. Notice that the cure rates um, uh, after 12 weeks uh, after therapy were um, uh, high, uh, 92% in those without cirrhosis and 80% in those with cirrhosis in this open label study. And so even though there wasn't a, com a comparison arm where people were randomized to peg interferon, a ribavirin, and a protease inhibitor, you can see that it would uh, certainly not have been inferior to the two-thirds uh, SVR rates or even the highest 75% uh, response rates that were uh, reported from those registration studies. And uh, I'll also note that the toxicity profile uh, also, uh, admittedly not a direct comparison, but uh, not surprisingly, was considerably better. I also mentioned Simipravir, which is a second-generation protease inhibitor, and when that medication is used with pegylated interferon uh, and ribavirin for genotype 1 hepatitis C, we also uh, have data to suggest uh, favorable response rates. Notice uh, a 80% uh, response rate uh, compared to uh, placebo with PEG and riba. That's a 30% improvement, which is approximately the same sort of improvement seen with first-generation protease inhibitors. Uh, but in this instance, there was, um, uh, it appears that the medication uh, might be better tolerated uh, and uh, may allow uh, perhaps even more persons to undergo uh, abbreviated 24-week treatment uh, uh, regimen. Well, uh, of course, that's the near-term future, but there's a lot of excitement about looking out beyond uh, the, the next six months and looking out to um, where the entire regimen uh, for genotype 1 is, uh, excludes pegylated interferon uh, or interferon of any type, just as it looks like we may be able to do with genotype 2 and 3, hepatitis C. And so I'll show you just a bit of data uh, uh, demonstrating proof in principle that that can be achieved. Notice here that in this study that we're combining a number of direct acting agents here and there's no interferon involved in any of these arms. We're looking at NS5A inhibitor combined with a PI, a non-nuke, and ribavirin in various combinations for various durations. Uh, I don't want to dwell uh, too much on any particular arms of this study, but I, I will point out that we're studying treatment durations as short as eight weeks and many of them 12 weeks and in none of these arms is there any uh, pegylated interferon, and in several of the arms you can notice that there's no ribavirin. So this is the future that we're pushing towards uh, uh, in this instance. We have phase two data to suggest that that future uh, is uh, an inevitability. Look at the overall cure rates um, uh, on the y-axis for these various arms stratified by whether person's genotype 1A or 1B. And you can see that even in the more difficult to treat 1A patients in most of these arms with this uh, four-drug regimen, even in persons who previously failed to respond to PEG and RIBA, complete null responders, that response rates uh, of more than 80% are achieved with no uh, interferon at all. In addition, uh, similar data have been um, 
presented uh, for using the nucleotide inhibitor cefospavir that I previously mentioned uh, showed you data for with genotype 2 and 3 uh, to be used only with ribavirin, and I, I showed you the data of cefospavir with PEG and riba for genotype 1. Now we're considering uh, cefospavir, uh, ribavirin, and an NS5 active uh, agent called ladipasvir uh, being used together for 12 weeks for genotype 1 hepatitis C infection. And admittedly, the studies are relatively small, but notice the cure rates are um, 100 percent, 25 out of 25, uh, for genotype uh, 1 patients who never have been treated before. And even more impressively, 9 out of 9 for null responders. Uh, and I, I, I emphasize that because uh, the same treatment regimen, cefospavir and ribavirin, that is, without the ladipasvir, uh, had previously been shown to, uh, to bring about SVR in only 10%. So that addition of the NS5A acting agent uh, was especially important in intensifying this regimen and moving the resistance barrier uh, high enough to where it's uh, bringing about uh, very high SVR rates, uh, uh, certainly more than 90%. Similar uh, data have been published from, uh, or at least presented, from a variety of other sources. And you can see that when these two medications that I'll point out are being co-formulated into one pill once a day, it's a phosphovirin lodipasvir, a nucleotide inhibitor, and an NS5A acting agent are used for as short as eight weeks. We're uh, already starting to see uh, very high sustained virologic response rates. And this uh, is one of the medications that is in phase three being tested um, for uh, uh, FDA approval for all oral um, treatment of genotype 1 hepatitis C infection. And it's possible that in the next 15 months, uh, if we look out that far, that these kinds of treatments could be available for your patients. It's also interesting to consider um, putting together some of the medicines uh, that uh, are individually being approved uh, to be used with pegylated interferon and ribavirin and whose approval is anticipated in the next six months. So in particular, cefospavir and semipravir uh, uh, both uh, have already filed uh, with the FDA to be used uh, with pegylated interferon and ribavirin and therefore could potentially be on the market. When those two are combined together, once again, uh, as with most of my slides, if you shift to the far right, you can see um, the, uh, the sustained virologic response rates are very high uh, in, in small phase two study uh, that combines these two um, oral agents, uh, uh, providing some uh, interesting uh, options uh, potential options for the foreseeable future. The worst case scenario uh, is someone that's failed tilapavir uh, uh, or bocepavir together with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So they've failed all the medications that are currently FDA approved for the treatment of hepatitis C. And you can see that uh, in this study that was designed to, to give those patients a combination of the cladosphere an NS5 acting uh, agent combined with a nucleotide inhibitor, cefospavir, 
that uh, uh, with or without ribavirin that we get uh, very high uh, sustained virologic response rates even without ribavirin. So just this combination of the NS5A acting drug with a nucleotide inhibitor seems to be a very effective regimen and uh, most of the data, if not all the data that we've seen to date suggests that that combination is especially uh, active uh, against hepatitis C even when someone's failed all three, uh, all available current treatments. So a patient's going to want to know when is all this possible and in many instances you've been following these patients for years already and, and you've had six monthly visits with them and, and, and now they're wondering uh, okay, when, when can I get treated without interferon and, and, and when can I expect that to be the case? Well, of course, no one has the, the, the absolute answer for that, but it's probably safe to say that in uh, a year and a half to two years, let's say two years out, that um, it, there should be at least some, uh, geno, uh, some uh, interferon sparing regimens for genotype 1 hepatitis C um, and uh, it, within six months, uh, possibly within two to three, there should be interferon sparing regimens for genotypes two and three. Uh, looking out beyond two years, I think there could be a high confidence uh, that, um, that there be interferon sparing uh, treatments available given the number of, of uh, various compounds and various combinations that are already being registered. Even for the HIV co-infected person, there are ongoing studies uh, with some of these most exciting uh, uh, regimens uh, and showing few, uh, if any, drug interactions and the potential to use them uh, in antiretroviral uh, uh, experienced patients. So how do we bring this back around then and uh, how do these data relate to the, to the uh, everyday decisions that we're making uh, with our patients? Um, I, I can't say that I uh, have one answer that works uh, for every patient. I, I would say that for my own practice, there, I do a lot of waiting, and I have been doing a lot of waiting for the past six to 12 months. Of course, whenever possible, uh, patients have been enrolling in the interferon sparing trials and trying to achieve the benefits of uh, uh, interferon sparing treatment before uh, those medications are available to all, uh, but uh, there are certainly individuals with low stage disease, uh, so uh, individuals without F3 or F4 fibrosis uh, are uh, largely waiting uh, for the opportunity to be cured uh, with medicines uh, uh, with lower uh, predicted uh, adverse events. For individuals with cirrhosis, it's a little bit more difficult, and I, um, I will uh, add that the uh, expected availability of safer uh, protease inhibitor and, 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 and or cefospivir uh, has even led me to um, uh, wait and begin to uh, hold back on treatment for persons uh, with cirrhosis with the expectation that though they might still have to take interferon, we'd have a higher likelihood of sustained virologic response uh, and uh, less uh, toxicity um, in, uh, in, in several months. Obviously, uh, 
there are differences of opinion on this uh, and even differences within my own practice depending on the level of uh, enthusiasm and readiness of the uh, given patient. So those are um, uh, the, the, the kinds of deliberations that we go through um, and uh, when we try to bring this to, to practice uh, in 2003, I can admit that it's 2013, uh, it can be somewhat uh, vexing uh, because of the uncertainty of the future and uh, the lack of, of really being able to predict what the insurance companies are going to approve uh, for given patients and the kinetics of when a particular patient's insurance will bring these new medications online. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I've learned the hard way that it's important to also uh, not in, um, uh, predict beyond what the, the events that I can control. And finally, I'll just uh, point out that uh, the ASLD and IDSA are working on guidelines uh, for the treatment of uh, chronic hepatitis C infection and anticipate uh, that those would be available in the first quarter of 2014. And hopefully those guidelines will bring some order and some um, structure to our decision making uh, and even to the question of uh, which patients should be treated now and which um, should uh, wait for safer treatments. So with those comments, I'll stop and um, take uh, questions. So for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I am Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I hope you have continued to find the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series useful and continue to check back for further topics.